Hello, and welcome back to Troy and the Trojan War. Today, we are absolutely changing gears. For the last seven weeks, we've been just reading Homer and trying to get what we can out of the text, assuming that he knew what he was talking about, and assuming that he was totally accurate about the events that had happened. Today, we destroy all of that. Um, today, we're talking about the actual history, the actual archaeology, the actual ancient cultures that would have resided in the place that we assume was Troy, all of those things. Because from here on out in this class, we're not going to be looking at Homer in a vacuum. Um, reading Homer all by himself is important. We need to understand what he's trying to get across from a literary perspective, what he's communicating us to us as a writer in his time, what are his historical objectives, what does he think is what happened. You know, all of that is really important and really sort of significant to take um, as we are reading and as we sort of recognize this great work of literature. Um, but we also have to recognize that it isn't consonant with history. Um, what archaeology tells us about Troy and the Trojan War is a completely different story from what Homer is telling us. And that doesn't mean that Homer is bad or Homer is wrong or that this is just myth. It's more complicated than that, as we're going to talk about today. Um, so with that in mind, let's go ahead and look at one of the sort of the sort of same mental perspective that we are kind of coming at this subject from, we're going to talk about the 19th century. And this guy, Heinrich Schliemann. Schliemann was an archaeologist. He was a German businessman who had a passion for Troy and is kind of one of the first major players in the whole business of excavating Troy and starting off the kind of examination of Troy as an archaeological site and looking at the findings that we find there as well as, you know, Homer for our understanding of how the Trojan War, if it happened, actually went down. Um, before we even get to Schliemann himself, I kind of want to talk about the whole 19th century attitude here. Um, see, in the 19th century, science was very much coming into its own. Um, after, you know, the scientific revolution in the 17th and 18th centuries, after the Enlightenment in the 18th century, um, there was a sort of renewed interest and emphasis on using science to solve our problems. And especially in the mid to late 19th century, there was a great deal of emphasis on demythologizing a lot of the stories, a lot of the myths, a lot of the religious texts um, that had been taken for granted for literally millennia at this point. Um, so, for example, there was a fellow by the name of Schleiermacher who was very interested in questioning and criticizing biblical texts. He was the one who was taking apart the Old Testament and the New Testament and sort of trying to take the mythology, the religion, the supernatural events out of these things and understand them from a purely historical perspective. Likewise, a lot of scholars in the 19th century were subjecting Homer to very similar criticism. A fair number of 19th century scholars were looking at Homer and saying this never happened. Um, there is no evidence that the Trojan War is a thing that exists, that Troy as a city existed at all, um, that there is any basis in reality for any of the myths that Homer is telling us. Um, and again, this is typical of the skepticism of the 19th century. If 
many of the centuries and the millennia beforehand were very sort of susceptible to the wisdom of the ancients. They took for granted that Homer was telling the truth about history, that uh, Herodotus was telling the truth about history, that Socrates and Plato and all of the great writers of the ancient Greek world were generally correct in their understanding of how these historical events happened, even if, again, most people, even in like the 16th and 17th century, were convinced that pagan gods didn't exist and Homer's religion had to be sort of separated from Homer's writing, but we'll talk about that in its own time. Um, suffice it to say that when Schliemann first heard his story of Troy, According to his own testimony, his dad told him very fondly of the story of Aeneas carrying his father out of Troy, as we'll see in the Aeneid. Um, and he fell in love with the whole story of Troy, the whole Trojan War narrative, the whole Homeric literature business. Um, but he was very alone in thinking that Troy was actually a thing that happened. Um, he had to convince his contemporaries that Troy existed. So he packed up and he packed up his wife, and they went off to Anatolia, and they found the site of Hisserlik. And here was where some people had rumored for, in fact, centuries at this point, that Troy had actually been. So he engaged in this massive archaeological expedition, and he uncovered all of this impressive stuff, and he argued very compellingly that this was, in fact, Troy. That, in fact, Troy did exist. It was at this location. And for that matter, the Trojan War did happen. Homer got most of the information right. For that matter, he proved his point by saying, and look at all the swag that I found. Um, he announced and made this huge press release, or at least press release by 19th century standards, took lots of pictures, reported his findings, wrote massive journal entries, all talking about this treasure that he had found in the walls of this ancient city of Troy. All of these jewels, like the golden headdress that you can see his wife Sophia wearing here, all of this pottery, all of these gold medallions and rings and tablets and you name it, just tons and tons of swag. Um, and he announced this was the treasure of Priam. In fact, this included a find perhaps even more famous than most of these findings, the Mask of Agamemnon, still called this to this day. Um, so called because he found it in a tomb or a little ways outside of the actual city of Troy complex that he had uncovered. Um, in short, Schliemann presented all of this evidence and said, hey, this is Troy. The, the ancient scholars and texts were totally correct. Um, here's all this swag, and that's archaeology, baby. But it's not. We need to emphasize right here and right now, Schliemann was telling a story. Start to finish, a lot of what he had to say was bullshit. For one thing, we have successfully identified that his father didn't tell him that story of, of Aeneas carrying his father out of Troy. Like, that was apparently totally made up. Half of the findings that he has recorded were, in fact, very dubious, and his wife Sophia wasn't even in the excavation when they found all this treasure that they supposedly took her picture with. In fact, they held it and then waited for her to come back and then took her picture with it. 
a, a lot of the uh, treasures and stuff were located at various points and not all discovered in one giant hoard. And many archaeologists have even argued since that he, as they put it, salted the treasure with stuff that he found from other locations and other places, stuff that he had already owned. In short, a lot of what Schliemann reported was really, really dodgy. What's more, he further complicated the things by, like, actually stealing the work of another archaeologist. Um, Schliemann was not the guy to discover Troy at the archaeological site of Hisserlik. There was another fellow named Calvert who had argued for Hisserlik being this, the place where Troy was located for many years before Schliemann had ever sort of set foot on the place. And in fact, Schliemann was looking at a completely different site altogether until he did in fact stumble across Calvert's findings decided that this was, in fact, the place where Troy was, and, for that matter, wrote Calvert out of his findings. Basically refused to acknowledge that Calvert had it right all along. And that's not the end of Schliemann's mistakes, either. There are a whole list that we will get to later on as we sort of uncover exactly all the problems with his claims here. Um, but we should also note that the whole business of these excavations turned into a giant international incident. Um, Schliemann himself smuggled a lot of these treasures, including the Priam's treasure and the Mask of Agamemnon, out of what was at the time the Ottoman Empire back into his homeland of Germany, all without the notice of the people who were running the show in Turkey or in the Ottoman Empire. So now there's this huge diplomatic incident. The Germans refuse to give the treasures back. It becomes this whole giant nightmare. What further complicates it is that all of the treasures end up captured by the Red Army when they turned out to, cap to uh, capture Germany in World War II. And all of them can now be found in the Pushkin Museum in Moscow. Um, just, it's this whole thing. And even into the 2000s and the 2010s, there was a lot of diplomatic friction about whether or not the Russians should return all of these finds to the Germans, never mind trying to get them back to Turkey, where they were originally found, plundered, and smuggled out of in the first place. So let's start by talking about archaeology here. Like, Schliemann's story is kind of typical of the 19th century. There were a lot of sort of self-called archaeologists like Schliemann, like Sir Francis Burton, like a number of different sort of ex-soldiers or ex-scholars sort of running around the place and getting into these international scrapes, taking this stuff and bringing it home to their museums without any regard for the country or the culture where these items were found, and sort of getting the facts and the history wrong in the first place. Like, part of Schliemann's whole business here was not, you know, I'm going to find Troy and I'm going to make history by, you know, correcting what Homer had said. No, he was interested in the treasure as much as he was interested in the knowledge. And you better believe he made a pretty penny digging up all these treasures, selling them back to his homeland without the knowledge of the Ottoman Empire where he had found them and basically promoting himself as this expert authority on the history of Troy. It's a giant mess, in short. So there's a lot of issues you have to sort of come to terms with when you start talking about archaeology in the first place. And I should stress, I don't know the half of them. 
I am not an archaeologist. As I've said many times before, this is not my wheelhouse. I'm a philosophy professor by training, not a classicist, not an archaeologist. This is way out of my comfort zone, and a lot of what I'm talking about today is actually coming directly from a book by Trevor Bryce called The Trojans and Their Neighbors, which I am incredibly indebted to for my knowledge of all this material, and basically everything we talk about today is rooted in one way or another in those findings or the findings that I found shortly afterwards just from exploring the internet and doing a little bit more digging. Um, in short, what I need to stress is archaeology is super-duper complicated. Um, I realize that a lot of you are probably familiar with various archaeological finds. You know, somebody on the History Channel announced or d delivers this whole 20-minute documentary about how, like, this is Troy, or this is Noah's Ark, or this is the evidence of aliens building the pyramids. Um, and a lot of that is kind of nonsense. Um, on the other side, real archaeologists who are doing a lot of careful studies of these works tend to be very cautious about making these big-scale claims. Um, what's more, in order to get all of this to happen, um, archaeologists need funding, which is why so many archaeologists, including Schliemann and those, you know, ride-by-night scholars of the 19th century, were so quick to kind of promote their find their studies and their excavations as treasure hunts or searches for lost uh, riches or alternatively as some really famous excavation like finding Troy. Um, so one of the things that we're going to do today, one of the things that I want to stress as we go through our discussion of the archaeological evidence about Troy, is I want to sort of approach it from an agnostic perspective. The tendency of many, many scholars is going to say, hey, look, it's Troy, you know, Troy from Homer, Hector and Achilles and Agamemnon and all those really famous dudes. Did you see the movie back in 2006 or maybe one of the older ones from the 40s or 50s? Have you read Homer? He's awesome. So this is definitely Troy. Please keep paying our bills. It is very much in the interest of many scholars, many archaeologists, many historians, many classicists, many sixth grade teachers trying to explain the Trojan War to their sixth grade classes to make Troy as simple and straightforward a find as possible. Hisarlik is Troy. This is the site of all of the things that Homer talks about. There is a one-to-one -one between the Trojan War that Homer writes about and the Trojan War that we find in archaeological evidence. But the fact is, it's way more complicated than this. In fact, Troy as a city, if in fact we can go so far as to say that the Hisarlik find is in fact Troy, and there is pretty good evidence that that is the case, the Hisarlik dig and excavation actually is really, really old. Um, so you'll notice here is a map of many ancient civilizations. I use this map in my mythology class. This is primarily to give you some context here. Um, when we talk about ancient cultures, we tend to get pretty ambiguous about what we mean by ancient. Um, so, for example, like when we talk about really ancient culture, we're usually talking about Sumeria, Babylon, um, the like early Akkadians, uh, the cradle of humanity here by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers up in Mesopotamia. Um, and this dates back to 
basically as early as any records of human civilization exist. This is the earliest place where we find evidence of agriculture. This is the place where we find the earliest evidence of writing. And this frequently dates back as far as 3500 BCE, although writing usually doesn't show up until the third millennium, i.e. like somewhere in the 2000s BCE at the very earliest. Um, by comparison, Ancient Egypt, which you've probably heard a great deal about, is also dating to roughly the same time, although it is a little bit later. The earliest dynasties of Egypt probably don't show up until about 3000 BCE and a little ways afterward. But I should emphasize our finding at Hiserlik, which would be right over here at the northwest edge of what is now Turkey, what we would call Anatolia in the ancient world. Um, the city of Troy, if we may call it that, whatever, you know, city we found here at Hiserlik, whether we want to call it Willusa or Troy or whatever, it's been around since 3000 BCE. Like, it's actually older than most of the ancient Egyptian dynasties. Uh, like, Babylon itself is barely a little village town, and Troy, the city in Anatolia, is a place and apparently has been settled for all of that time. It's, like, the Trojan story begins way before Homer. Way before Homer wrote, and way before Homer was writing about it. And in fact, all that stuff that you'll know in Homer's writings about Troy, like there's that whole speech that Aeneas gives us about like, my great-great-grandfather is the guy who founded Troy. Bull! Because Troy was around for at least a thousand years before Aeneas's great-great-grandfather founded it, if we may put Aeneas around 1500 BCE or 1400 BCE. We're talking about a really, really old excavation, like surprisingly old even by uh, archaeology standards. Because the rest of the Mycenaean world, the Greeks... You know, the the major, like, Greek ancient ruins that we frequently talk about as sort of being the cradle of Western civilization, they're way younger than this. Um, we don't run into the Minoans and the early Mycenaeans until something like 2000 BCE. So Troy is something like a thousand years older than even the oldest uh, Mycenaean findings. Um, it definitely predates anything to do with Greece in some respect. Um, and it is very much a contemporary of Babylon, of Egypt, even if its significance and power will never get to the, that sort of size. Um, so note first, here is our map situation. Like this is, again, anticipating a great deal. Like most of our lecture, we're going to be focusing primarily on that 3000 BCE to say 1300 BCE period, namely the time that Troy was a thing leading up to the actual Trojan War as Homer records it, or the time that we expect the Trojan War would have been. Um, but this map just gives us some decent context here. Um, again, this is basically the Aegean world that uh, Homer is talking about throughout the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, over here is Greece, which you'll notice is a giant mess of a landmass. Like, it's a huge peninsula, but it's a messy peninsula. Like, notice the Gulf of Corinth means that, like, 
Corinth is the only place where you can actually cross on the mainland from like the Peloponnesus down here up to the mainland uh, Greek Peninsula up here. Um, you'll notice some of our major cities that get talked about quite a bit in the Iliad. Mycenae is where uh, Agamemnon hails from um, and is probably the center of the Mycenaean world, which we'll talk about in the future. Sparta down here is the home of Menelaus. You know, the same Menelaus who had his uh, Helen abducted by Paris and company. Um, and over here is Athens, which is where I believe it's Ido... No. Um, Idomeneus comes from Crete, which is down here. Uh, Athens is where a number of our other heroes sort of hail from in one respect or another. As well as Thebes, which is one of the major conquests before the actual Trojan War gets on. You'll notice that Andromache especially complains about how Achilles like killed all of her family in Thebes. Um, so she hails from there. Troy, by contrast, this is the location of the archaeological site of Hiserlik. This is where most ancient thinkers thought Troy that existed. Um, is over here on Asia Minor, which again we'll call Anatolia most of this lecture. Get used to the names. A lot of them will change. We'll clarify them as we go. Um, but notice that in order to get from Mykene to Troy, it means a lot of boat travel. A lot of islands to stop at along the way and potentially pillage all their stuff. Um, now, based on Greek mythology and history, a lot of these islands do in fact have a lot of culture attached to them. Some of these are the centers of um, major myths. Some of these are supposedly where Odysseus got lost at various times and some of his various adventures can be pinpointed to certain islands in the Greek tradition. Um, but for our purposes, note that this is where the Trojan War business is going to happen. But for all that, we're actually going to be focusing most of our attention on this lecture over here on Asia Minor, Anatolia, the place where Troy and its culture would have been uh, sort of identified and, and found. Um, note that Homer very much associates Troy with the rest of the Achaeans, which, with Greece and Greek culture generally. That probably isn't accurate, at least from a historical perspective. Um, most scholars agree that it is very unusual um, that Homer sort of regards the Trojan culture and the Greek culture to be so similar to one another. They apparently share the same language, they apparently same the, or share the same cultural priorities, they both think hospitality is important, they both think, you know, honorable combat is important. That's not the way history tells this story, in short. Um, Troy is most likely more associated with the culture on Asia Minor throughout its entire duration. Um, like, there are no major empires in Anatolia for a long while in Troy's history. We'll talk about when those empires start to form and are, are built. Um, suffice it to say that, in all likelihood, the Trojans and the Greeks probably didn't even share the same language, except insofar as they were interacting and trading with each other. But like I said, we'll get to that in its own time. Um, now, the next thing that we should emphasize is, what is Troy now? And when I say now, I mean, like, now. This is uh, actually Google Earth images. I did a lot of poking around on Google Earth because I've never actually been to the Hisarlik ruins because I'm an adjunct professor and I definitely do not have the money to go fly off to Troy at, you know, any a moment's notice. Um... This is literally me on my computer taking a screenshot of my internet browser with all the tabs open as I'm doing the research. 
And part of the reason why I want to emphasize this, why I want to emphasize that literally, like, I found this online as I was sort of poking around doing my research, is because I encourage you to do the same. You know, this is Google Earth we're talking about, which means that you're seeing, like, one shot of these ruins when you can actually go on Google Earth and literally wander around in it. Like, click everywhere and, you know, have your little dude, the little, like yellow avatar guy walk around the ruins and you know you can absolutely see all of this as it exists between 2017 and 2019 this is what it looks like now this is what the archaeologists are bumming around in this is what the tourists are hanging around in this is what you know casual or more intensive scholars like myself are looking at um, and thinking about when they think about the archaeological excavation of Hisarlik. Um, this is what Troy looks like today, mess and all. And I want to emphasize that this is not like the Greek Acropolis or anything. You do not have a lot of really obvious structures here. Like, it's clear that there are walls, there were old buildings, you can see the places where, the, where these things were created and probably built over at various times. Uh, but all of what we're talking about today and trying to sort of recreate Troy to sort of understand what was Homer talking about when he was talking about this city, if he even knew what he was talking about at all, this is the evidence we're going on. Like, it is gorgeous in its way, and it is elaborate, and it is sophisticated, and there's a great deal of work being placed, put into sort of understanding, excavating, restoring, working on this site. Um, again, because it is a major site, and it is really popular, and a lot of people are willing to pay money to make Homer's sort of Iliad more real to more people. Um, but I should emphasize that a lot of the less sexy archaeological sites are not going to get nearly this kind of treatment. Um, and we'll do a little bit of comparison as we go along uh, throughout this lecture. Um, but note, again, don't take my word for it. Like, this is a panoramic view. You can do the whole 360 view here. You can even notice, like, right here where the line doesn't match up. Like, that's clearly where the, the uh, panoramic views were sort of, like, slapped together by the various photographers that Google had employed or had sort of subcontracted here. Um, by all means, go and play around there. Go on Google Earth. Go look at the Hisserlik site. It's pretty easy to track down. Um, it didn't take me long to find it at all. So walk around. The Google has gone pretty well out of their way to make sure that a lot of the views of this archaeological site are visible and apparent to the inquisitive internet viewer. Um, and honestly, this was like the coolest thing I've used the internet for in a long time. Like this almost makes up for the fact that Twitter exists. Um, but suffice it to say, too, that as much as you're looking at walls and trying to get a sense and probably imagining, like, okay, so where were the buildings? How did this all work? Remember, too, Troy is not one thing. Like, now it is as much a tourist attraction as it is an actual scholarly historical site. You can walk into their recreated Trojan horse, which has no basis in anything true or real. Um, again, this is how these archaeologists are funding what they are doing. Like, it is pretty easy by comparison to get funding for a major archaeological site like Troy or the Egyptian pyramids or the tombs of the pharaohs, you know, all that stuff. I should very much emphasize that if this isn't the site of Troy, we probably destroyed whatever is the real site of Troy. 
Um, and again, it's complicated. I don't want to sort of like indicate that this is definitely not it. We'll get there. Um, but again, the thing about archaeology is that it goes hand in hand with a lot of other disciplines, a lot of other problems and a lot of other issues. Archaeology doesn't happen in a vacuum. You don't just go to a place and start digging and everybody leaves you alone. No, you've got to pay for it. And the only way that you're going to pay for it is with press and publicity and people, you know, patronizing your, your work, either at the university level or in so far as like rich foundations or because you're renting it out to tourists in order to make a little money on the side and keep the study going. Um, you're going to have complex problems like your sites being raided by robbers and thieves who are interested in selling antiquities on the black market and in fact there's a great deal of strange interaction between archaeology and black market trade like on the one hand archaeology doesn't exist without black market trade schleeman was definitely a black market trader in smuggling his uh findings overseas um at the same time that, you know, archaeology is sort of interested in the scholarship and trying to get, you know, actual, like, knowledge about the place where they're at. It is a constant battle for archaeologists to keep their business and their excavations afloat. Um, people want to build stuff. They want to take this stuff and build new hotels and build new structures and build new buildings, which would totally wreck anything that the archaeologists are doing. So it is kind of an obvious solution to play up. This is Troy. This is Homer's Troy. Here's a Trojan horse. Why don't you walk around in it? In order to get more people to take it more seriously and to give more money to their work so they can do what they want to do. Namely, find out stuff, learn things, write books, get published, become more notable scholars, and the whole cycle of commerce versus scholarships starts all over again. Um... But let's get to the actual business of Troy itself. Um, first off, most archaeological sites of ancient cities and other major stuff of this nature tends to occur in layers. Um, remember, like, Troy did not exist for just, like, five years and then stop. It has history. It's existed since 3000 BCE and proceeds all the way into, like, 500 AD. It's one of the most long, it's probably the longest most or inhabited place on the face of the earth in all likelihood, or at least it's pretty darn close. Um, Troy was, had inhabitants pretty much consistently for 4,500 years, or at least uh, 3,500 years. Um, not many, even some of the major sites in, in Egypt or in Babylon or elsewhere can make such a claim. Um, so we need to emphasize that the archaeological site, as a consequence, is composed in strata. There are layers here. Um, and the enumeration of the layers is according to Schliemann's enumeration, which is backwards. Um, all archaeological digs in the contemporary world tend to emphasize, rather than, like, going from you know bottom to top going from top to bottom because that way you can always add more and find out more as you're going um but importantly schliemann wasn't interested in actual scholarship he wanted to find priam's troy so his whole strategy here was to dig down all the way to priam's troy and then never mind whatever was on top of it but that was that was worthless to him it was it was newfangled nonsense he wants the Homeric story. 
um, as as accurately as he can possibly get it. Um, so I should emphasize again: it's backwards. It's a mess. We are going to be sort of walking through history from Troy 1, the earliest version of Troy, the earliest city that is found at the Hisarlik site, all the way up to Troy 6, 7, 8, and 9, which are the newest additions and sort of the, the latest stuff that has been built on Troy's foundation. Now, this is actually like a legit sign on Troy. Like you can see the places where it's like bolted onto the, onto the uh, signpost. Um, and I'll be using some of their materials several times here. Um, you can also see that they have a kind of rough map of the, the Hisarlik site with the various strata um, highlighted in various colors. Um, so the oldest parts of the city are in brown over here. The Troy 2 is here in yellow. Troy 5, 6, and 7 are in the orange. And then the newest stuff is in blue. Um, we'll be using similar maps as we go, again, provided by the Hisarlik site, because, again, they've got a lot of resources and a decent website and all that fun stuff, which will make all of this much easier and happier. Um, but, again, all of this is in ruins. And part of the business of excavating an ancient city is trying to put back together the things that have been taken apart by the various residents. Because, you know, when Troy 2 falls and everybody is sort of rebuilding, trying to make Troy 3, um, all of these people are going to take all of the rubble, all of the stone from Troy 2 and incorporate it into their new Troy 3 buildings. And then the people in Troy 4 are going to do the same thing with Troy 3. And the people of Troy 5 are going to do the same thing to Troy 4. Um, and, you know, as each culture is trying to, like, eke out a living in this same location, they don't care about the archaeological relevance of the stuff beneath them. Um, the stuff that came before, it's just all potential building materials in the same way that people like strip houses for copper pipes today. Um, it's valuable stuff, so you need it for whatever you're doing nowadays. So again, like, keep in mind, this has not been like carefully preserved like an Egyptian mummy here. Um, this is preserved sort of because the whole thing has not moved terribly far away from itself over many, many, many centuries of people building, rebuilding, taking things down and making them up again. Like, it's a mess, in short. And reconstructing it is always going to be sketchy as a consequence. Again, I'm going to be approaching this from a fairly agnostic perspective. Now, if you are looking for a more robust understanding, I love this diagram by Townsend. Um, this is a rough depiction of what Troy looked at at its various stages of development. All the way back to Troy 1, down here, dating all the way back to 3000 BCE, where it was just this tiny little walled fortified village. All the way up to the contemporary versions of Troy, including like Troy 9 here in 500 AD, where it's been thoroughly Romanized, and so on and so forth. But you'll notice that the one that they are sort of especially emphasizing here is Troy 6. Um, Troy 6 is the right time period for the Trojan War, if in fact it happened. So Troy 6 is the one that most people tend to think is where the Trojan War would have happened. It is the Homeric version of Ilion or Troy um, as we know it today. But I should emphasize that was not what Schliemann thought, at least not originally. 
Um, Schliemann's whole process in excavating Troy was, I don't care about any layer higher than the one that I think that belongs to, you know, Priam's Troy. And he thought that Troy 2 was Priam's Troy, even though, again, I should emphasize that was a thousand years earlier than Priam's Troy. Troy 2 dated back to probably 2500 or 2400 BCE before it was destroyed, which we'll talk about. Schliemann thought that was the Troy he was referring to because of his own misinformation, despite the fact that at least one of his aides was like, no, dude, it's got to be Troy 6. Troy 2 is way older. And finally, in his very last sort of diary entries before he died, Schliemann was forced to admit he was wrong, and Troy 6 was the one that he got to. But importantly, Schliemann's methods were not interested in preserving the archaeological integrity of these buildings and fortifications and findings either. In fact, it's said that he dynamited his way um, down to Troy too to get there as quickly as possible, find as much swag as he possibly could, get only what he wanted to get, and damn whatever the rest of the excavation might have yielded. Hence what we call Schliemann's Trench. Rather than sort of carefully excavating the whole area bit by bit, piece by piece, logging every discovery as he did, the way that contemporary excavations tend to work, the way that contemporary archaeologists tend to work, Schliemann just dug straight through walls, straight through fortifications, straight through buildings, straight through whatever treasures he found, get rid of them, pack them up, ship them off, who cares? What I care about is here, Troy 2. And as a consequence, ironically, Schliemann destroyed much of the city that he was looking for. Like, you'll notice there are marks here. Our photographer has conveniently labeled the various layers of Troy. Troy 6 is the topmost layer that he's digging through here. He is wrecking all of Priam's Troy in, a, in order to get to a Troy that existed a thousand years before Priam did. So Schliemann is not only you know, giving us bad information, occasionally massaging the truth into making his patrons pay him more for his findings and for his work. But he's also doing bad work. He's wrecking the place as he's doing it. And many archaeologists have been very angry with Schliemann for what he's doing. Um, but I should emphasize, in the 19th century, archaeology was not really a, a discipline in any sense. It was very rough and tumble. As much as Schliemann is kind of the worst archaeologist ever, he's also kind of the best in his time. Um, it was a messy, sort of unprincipled discipline back then. Anything went. And Schliemann got the ball rolling on this excavation, as much as he did a lot of damage in the process. So keep that in mind. It's complicated. But enough about that. Um, the key is that this clearly isn't Priam's treasure. Um, this clearly all dates back to a Troy II that is a thousand years older than Priam's treasure. And all that fancy swag that's on display in Moscow, they have correctly identified it at this point as belonging to a Troy long predating whatever was going on in Priam's Troy. Um, so let's talk about Troy II. The one that Schliemann thought was Priam's Troy, the one where all of that treasure apparently comes from. Um, like, all of this, you know, dates back to this particular iteration of the city. Um, now, I should emphasize, as much as Schliemann did kind of make up and sort of, like, shoot from the hip in describing his treasure and his swag, most archaeologists have, in fact, verified that the 
most of the treasure that he found does in fact date back to this part of the city, dates back to Troy too, and is authentic to the location. As much as, you know, many have accused him of bringing treasures from outside into the city to justify his work, in fact, there's very little evidence that that was the case. Um, so the question we're kind of left with is, okay, so what is Troy too? Like, what was the culture surrounding this particular version of Troy at this particular moment? And I should emphasize, this is all coming from an interactive map, and I'm going to be using this map fairly frequently, so you'll see it sort of like get added onto piecemeal as we go through the various layers of Troy. Um, by all means, go check out the website. It's fascinating. There's a lot of stuff that you can learn there. Um, all of these dots are hard points that you can examine, and they've got like special pictures and explanations and descriptions. There's some really good stuff out there. In fact, I find it kind of interesting that I'm getting this much information, because a lot of the time when I'm studying mythology, like I did a study on uh, the Gilgamesh not too long ago, and there's like nothing um, for this stuff. So all of these resources are great. By all means, use them. Um, now, the thing about Troy 2 is that it is, again, really, really old. Like, this is a city that would have basically existed at the earliest times of the, the city of Babylon and some of the major Greek or Egyptian capitals. Like, this isn't a big city, but it is surprisingly sophisticated for this part of the world at this particular time. Um, no finding in Western Anatolia or in Greece at this point would have been comparable. Um, the, uh, the only major significant sort of similarity between this site and other sites throughout the Mycenaean world, the ancient Greek world, um, is what we call the Megaron. And again, here's a Google Earth image. By all means, go explore it yourself. Um, you'll notice that it's protected, like they've constructed this sort of hasty little cover for it because this is like the center of Troy. Um, there's not much to look at here besides like all these walls. Um, but Megaron architecture was actually very common um, in the Mycenaean world. You can find it in Mycenae itself, in Pylos, and Corinth, all over the place. And the way that most Megarons seemed to be structured were these big sort of open plan hallways um, where a lot of people could hang out and congregate. Um, like, we're talking really large constructions here, like giant palaces in short. Um, with this sort of central fire pit, which would have warmed the place in cold weather and also been a place where you could prepare food and stuff. Everyone would congregate around the fire and notice that the central area would be open with possibly multiple floors for the smoke to escape. Um, again, you can. this is an artist's rendering of the Megaron at Pylos. Um, the Megaron at, at Hisarlik, uh, or Troy, is way more narrow, as you know the picture would indicate. Um, so it clearly doesn't look exactly like this, but this should give you a rough idea of what the Greeks and Trojans were kind of working with when they constructed that Megaron. Um, and remember, the Megaron is sort of the center of Troy too. So the indication here is that there were some pretty rich dudes hanging out in Troy too. In Troy 1, it was basically a pretty run-down village. Lots of sort of small uh, settlements, lots of small houses surrounded by a fortification. Basically, it's a walled village, likely with farmland outside. By Troy 2, it's clear that somebody rich and powerful has taken up shop um, in the city of Troy as we had it before. Um, so, um, like, it's clear that, you know... It's moving up in the world. And for that matter, Troy 2 is the richest that Troy is going to be until easily Troy 5 or 6. 
Um, this is going to be the height of Trojan civilization for the better part of a thousand years in short. Um, but for all that, I should also emphasize that it's not that impressive compared to a lot of other archaeological sites. So this, for example, over on the right is uh, some footage from Alaka Hoyuk, um, which is in northern, like more eastern Anatolia, uh, modern day Turkey. This is like north central Asia Minor, north central Turkey. And notice, like, again, we've got way more impressive structures here, a way bigger scale for the tombs that are being uh, excavated here. Notice, too, that as much as there's a lot of pretty cool swag coming from Troy, too, it's nothing in comparison to some of the stuff that was being buried in Alakahoyuk. Um, so as much as Troy, too, was probably a surprisingly old, surprisingly big city for its region, it still wasn't huge. It wasn't terribly important. It doesn't have nearly the cultural cachet or significance of someplace like Babylon or someplace like... Um, like Hattuta, uh, the, the sort of capital city of what will be the Hittite Empire. Um, these two sites are, in fact, contemporaneous. Um, Alakahoyuk also dates back to the mid-third millennium uh, BCE. Um, so as much as Hisarlik is a big deal and is unique in a lot of ways and is sort of surprisingly old and surprisingly robust and surprisingly rich, it's still not important by any extent of the imagination. It's not a huge deal by comparison to a lot of the other cities at, at the time. Um, so it's kind of hard to fix exactly where it lands as far as its significance and importance and exactly how much it would have been important in the ancient world. We should also note, though, that Troy II came to a bad end. Um, the reason why they're enumerated this way, why it's, you know, this specifically is Troy 1, this specifically is Troy 2, and then 3, and then 4, and then 5, is usually there's some sort of catastrophic event. Usually, like, the city catches on fire or something and is destroyed. Um, Troy 2 significantly did catch on fire and was destroyed, but also shows some evidence of some violence taking place. Um, and what's more, remember, all this treasure was found hidden in the wall of Troy II for Schliemann to find. Um, so the suggestion here seems to be that Troy II, whatever the, the deal was there, um, probably was destroyed and then carried on without any terribly significant overturning like it's the same culture that ended up founding the city for troy three rebuilding everything and taking inhabit or their inhabitants there but since the treasure is still hidden in the walls the suggestion seems to be that they didn't know it was there you know all these people are like resettling the same city after it was kind of torched people who you know show very great similarity to the people who lived there before but all those rich dudes probably are dead at this point so a lot of archaeologists think that troy II fell due to insurrection um, the people rose up killed those rich people who were hanging out in the megaron took all their stuff except that they they managed to like the the rich folks managed to hide this stuff in the wall took all their stuff didn't know that there was all this treasure in the wall and then proceeded about their business like nothing had happened um so this is also, at the same time, the moment when empires are starting to form in the ancient Near East. So if Troy II fell to an independent uprising, the suggestion definitely seems to be that Troy II was largely disconnected 
from the rest of the world. This was before the Age of Great Empires. This was probably just one fortified settlement, one sort of self-sufficient colony, um, probably engaging in a little bit of trade with the Mycenaeans in their early form, but probably not terribly informed by like an overall or arching power structure or bureaucratic system. There was no you know consistent trade route. They just had connections to various Mycenaeans or were inhabited by various Mycenaeans bringing their architectural style. Um, now, simultaneously, down in the area that we call the Fertile Crescent around the Euphrates and the Tigris, around where, we'll, where Babylon will be one day, um, we have our first emperors kind of taken over the place, namely Sargon and the early Akkadian Empire. Um, he is starting to consolidate large swaths of the ancient Near East into one big sort of um, empire in its own right. And as much as you can't see, like, the greater context here, you should know this is Anatolia over here. Like, Troy would be right over here, over to the mask somewhere. Um, notice, too, that he's reaching down into, you know, Israel, Palestine, important stuff in connection to the Old Testament there. Um, as well as taking over what will be like much of the Persian Empire and Sargon is in fact sort of hailed as being the earliest um, like emperor of the Persians and that whole business much as you know he wouldn't have call it per called it Persia at this particular point. Um, that said though his empire doesn't last too terribly long and by 2100 BCE it's very much dissolved again and the Akkadians are very much not a thing. Um, however, at the same time, there are a great number of Assyrians who are sort of building a trade empire throughout Anatolia into um, the like Sumerian, Mesopotamian, Babylonian region, especially in the sort of early uh, second millennium around 1900 and 1800 BCE, roughly the same time as Troy 4 to 6 is taking place. Uh, but notice that they do not reach that far west. Like, Troy, Hisarlik, is located up here in the top west corner um, of Anatolia. The, the Assyrians are primarily focused on the eastern part. They're not reaching that far towards the coast. Um, so as much as the Assyrians are sort of building trade and sort of setting the stage for the, uh, for the Hittite Empire to come, once again, Troy is kind of isolated, is kind of cut off from that, and is connected more to the the Mycenaeans if they're connected to anyone at all um, but Troy 4 to 5 especially aren't terribly wealthy um, 3 to 5 is again poorer generally than Troy 2 and while Troy 3 to 5 is expanding in size sort of like expanding its reach building new layers of walls outside of the walls that we saw for Troy 2 um, building smaller, more numerous, and possibly more cramped houses surrounding uh, the, the location of Troy II in the new uh, walls and in the new structure, um, they're clearly not as powerful as Troy II was. They're not getting the same amount of trade. They're not sort of as strategically located. Uh, they're not connected to a greater system of bureaucracy or government the way that they likely were um, during Troy II. Um, again, they have been cut off throughout this early part of the second millennium, the, the sort of Middle Bronze Age, so to speak. Um, but the Assyrians, you know, as much as they are kind of an important deal, we should also stress that they're not necessarily the Assyrians you're thinking of, if in fact you know of the Assyrians. Um, these are cuneiform tablets over here on the left. 
And you'll notice that I've emphasized they are circa 1800 BCE, like these were in fact found in Anatolia. So it's clear that the Assyrians had an important trading network, had an important uh, writing system that helped them to coordinate all of their trade. Uh, but the Assyrians as an empire, as an actual force of war, are not going to come around until like the 9th century BCE, well after everything that we're talking about today for the most part. Um, this the Assyrians aren't going to be an actual power in the region until after the Trojan War, after the Bronze Dark Age, after the resettlement of Troy, um, and even then the Assyrians are going to be pretty short-lived when they are ultimately conquered by the Medo-Persians and end up sort of setting the stage for a lot of the classical conflicts that we'll talk about in future lectures. Um, by contrast, the Hittites do take over most of Anatolia, do sort of organize and construct a, a bureaucratic system that ends up running the show throughout basically all of Anatolia, and do end up, I say conquer, but conquer probably isn't the correct term, because they probably just sort of moved in, became the big power in town, and the Trojans sort of agreed to abide by their rule and their law. Um, the Hittites are, in short, the power that would have been in place during the Trojan War and during much of the life of Troy during what we call Troy VI. Um, and notice that the, uh, the Hittites also have a lot of connections to a lot of other sort of Trojan neighbors, um, including, you'll notice, Luca down here in the southwest, which most archaeologists and most scholars of classical history would definitely and clearly identify with the Lycaeans of the Trojan War. Like, remember, Sarpedon hails from Lycaea, and the Lycaeans are, like, especially fierce fighters, and they're sort of the most important Trojan allies. There's actually a pretty decent amount of uh, backup in Hittite literature and in Hittite writing to suggest that the Lycaeans were actually really awesome fighters and were actually a really important part of the empire, um, even if they were sort of disconnected from the Hittite empire proper. Um, so you'll notice like the hard green line that sort of circles around this central area of Anatolia and down into the, the sort of ancient Near East, again, going into Lebanon uh, and even as far as Palestine in some respects. Um, this is really the, the sort of like central empire, the central control here. Um, but as much as like the capital of the Hittite empire is here in Hattusa in the Hatti province, um, and as much as there are like clearly important uh, civil centers and cities um, throughout this region, you'll notice that they do have a great deal of reach to the western part of the empire. And they have clear treaties and arrangements with Walusa up here in the northwest, the region that Troy is sort of a part of, and in all likelihood Troy was kind of the seat of the Walusan province, as well as down here in Lucca. Notice too, though, that we have this province Achiawa, um, which ha many scholars and archaeologists have argued is probably roughly comparable to the Achaeans of the Mycenaeans, um, just as many scholars and archaeologists point to the fact that the Wilusans up here in the northwest could very well connect to Wilusa, um, as the Achaeans call it, and once they get rid of the digamma, we end up with Ilion or Iliad. Um, so it is very likely that the names are bleeding over into each other. The Hattite or the Hittites notice that the Achaeans have these names like Lycaeans, like uh, Ilions, um, which likely work 
between the two cultures. Um, in short, there's some good evidence here that the Ilion of Homer is the same as the Wulusa of the Hittites, just as the Luca of the Hittites is probably related to the Lycaeans of Homer and the Achaeans um, of the Hittites to the Achaeans of Homer. Um, so there is some evidence here that these cultures are bumping into each other, exchanging names, have in fact some connections to the world that Homer is describing. Um, but I should also emphasize that there's very little evidence. Like as much as the Hittite Empire is very preoccupied with its major cities, and again this sort of central landmass, there's remarkably little evidence, written or otherwise, about what the deal is with these outlying provinces, who the Ahuayan or Ahyawans are, um, who the Lucans are, and who the Walusans are. Um, like shockingly little to the point that the archaeologists and, and scholars who have sort of studied this stuff had to kind of figure out where Walusa is by process of elimination because there isn't anything that's like oh yeah here's a sign that says Walusa nine miles this way um that's just not the case um so it's clear that the Hittites didn't have a whole lot of truck with these which is why you'll notice the map doesn't include it as part of the Hittite empire um, like they are just outlying provinces, sort of buffer states, sort of within their provenance, but not under their control. Um, likewise, you'll notice that we are working with really sketchy data here, especially because Walusa itself, like there is no literacy, no, no written evidence for what's going on in Troy. Like for all of the excavations made in Hisarlik, none of them have included like a stockpile of writings, which is actually really unusual. Um, in many of these cities, many of which have been destroyed by fires, there's sort of this weird coincidence in archaeological circles where any place where the written tablets are being made, the clay tablets where cuneiform writing was typically written, as we saw just a moment ago from the Assyrian cuneiform tablet, um, these tablets get fired in order to sort of set them in stone, so to speak. Like, not exactly, but the uh, comparison is remarkably apt in this case. Um, in short, you would fire the tablet, making it hard, and then that would be your written record. You would take it to the temple or to the library or wherever um, to keep that information for the future. However, tablets that weren't yet fired, that were waiting to be put in the furnace to be sort of, again, set in stone, um, oftentimes, you know, if there was something chaotic happening, if a fire broke out, um, people would just abandon those tablets like before they were fired. And as a consequence, the fire would consume them, which would hard fire them, make them even harder than they would be in the normal furnace because the fire was again out of control and burning at a much higher temperature and so on and so forth. Um, so as a consequence, a lot of the written records we have in the Hittite Empire, in Babylon, in Egypt, etc., um, are preserved specifically because these fires broke out and hard-fired these clay tablets before they were otherwise fired. Um, the softer tablets would be destroyed by these fires, but the harder, or the tablets that had not yet been fired, that had not been made hard, would actually become hard enough to survive thousands of years and become great archaeological evidence. Um, so we have tablets like that throughout the Hittite Empire. Tons of stuff in Hattusa, um, tons of stuff in many of these cities, and none in Hisarlik, which is just weird. Like, this 
as, as strange as it is to say, this accident of hard firing these clay tablets is so common that archaeologists have come to expect it in virtually every city that they come across. The fact that there are none in Hisarlik indicates to those same archaeologists that they probably weren't literate, that they probably didn't have writing, and that they probably didn't have major administrative importance, especially compared to the rest of the Hittite world, or the Hittites would have provided them with scholars, with writers, with scribes, and expected them to produce this kind of writing. So again, Walusa is disconnected from the Hittites to some degree, despite the fact that they clearly were under the greater administrative umbrella of the Hittites. The Hittites clearly had a great deal of trade and interaction with them, and we were definitely watching over their shoulders as things happened. Um, but that brings us to Troy VI. Troy VI is the Troy under the Hittites. It is the Troy that most likely would have been the Troy sacked by the Achaeans, um, the one destroyed in the Trojan War. The times all line up there. Um, Troy VI dates to roughly 1800 to 1250 BCE and existed at like a level of stability throughout those centuries. Um, it was a very long-lived part of the Trojan history and it was also a surprisingly powerful. This is the peak of the Trojan world in the ancient world before the, the Bronze Age collapse. Um, and you'll notice that, again, if this was where Troy II was located, as the earlier map emphasizes, a great many of the Trojan structures that are found in Hisarlik are sort of surrounding Troy II, building on greater and greater layers and levels. So Troy II had its own walls surrounding the Megaron structure. Now we have an additional set of fortifications and walls surrounding Troy II's walls and structures, as well as a lot of smaller houses and sort of like poor uh, living conditions for various people around this side of the wall. Um, what's more, Many scholars and uh, archaeologists have identified a number of houses and, you know, other small estates and, like, poor, poor living uh, spaces surrounding the Troy Six walls, uh, especially to the south, thus suggesting that there was sort of like an upper Troy with the remains of the Megaron structure and, you know, the stuff that had been built over it, likely the Palace of Priam, if we can take Homer for, for being true here, as well as the, the citadel of Troy, the place where the wealthy Trojans likely lived, and all of that would have been surrounded by a lower town, a lower Troy, where lots of poorer structures, poorer inhabitants would have dwelt and lived. Um, and this would have possibly extended all the way to the Scamander ri River and the Bosphorus. Um, so again, a lot of this is uncertain. Like many archeologists point to this lower city, but we do not have a map nearly this sophisticated of the way that it worked. We have found these ditches like these trenches surrounding the city, likely another form of fortification, although it is really unclear what the purpose of these trenches were. Um, and archeologists are very much in disagreement about whether they were defensive works or whether they were for irrigation and therefore this would have been farmland. It's really, really unclear. Um, but what we should note is that on the one hand, this does line up a lot with what the what the uh, Iliad tells us about the Trojan city, the Trojan fortifications, and so on and so forth. Um, this lines up with Hector walking through the city, getting mobbed by women and widows as he's making it to the palace where he could interact with Priam. However, we should emphasize that this palace is not nearly as grandiose as Homer makes it out to be. This neither is the citadel at large. Also, we should emphasize that the Trojan 
fortifications here look very different from the way that uh, Homer kind of describes and emphasizes them, especially because Homer never talks about this trench, and he never talks about the wooden palisades that there's pretty good evidence for, and he's, you know, there are a lot of gates that Homer doesn't seem terribly interested in. On the one hand, Homer describes the city as though it's as small as the citadel. On the other hand, he seems to take the citadel and expand it to be way bigger. So on the one hand, it does seem to line up with Homer. On the other hand, it's not a one-to-one -one match, and there's a lot of stuff that kind of stands out as being out of sync. It's possible that these artists are misrepresenting the scope of the city, the size of the city, especially based on what few archaeological finds there actually are. So again, this could be optimism on the part of scholars, archaeologists, artists, in an effort to sort of emphasize, hey, this is the Troy of Homer, give us money. Um, this is what it actually looks like. So these are the, uh, I believe, the eastern fortifications. Like you can see the Megaron structure and the canopy covering it over here. Um, this would be the eastern side of the citadel as it was depicted by the artists there. And one of the things that I do want to emphasize about the walls here is that they are at a very distinct slant, which is something that apparently is fairly common amongst Hittite architecture and is something that... Um, like a number of commentators, especially Bryce and his tro uh, the Trojans and their neighbors, um, he stresses that this would have made the walls climbable. Um, like this is possibly why we get a description in Homer's Iliad of Patroclus literally scaling the walls of Troy, climbing up them only to be rebuffed by Apollo. Or alternatively, this could be why Andromache emphasizes to Hector that there is a weak spot in the Trojan, uh, in the Trojan walls where a lot of Achaeans are sort of sniffing around getting ready to climb up those walls. Um, you can climb these walls, in theory. It's a lot of work, it's going to be slow going and careful at that, um, and therefore they are effective fortifications, but they are at a slant and therefore can be climbed, can in fact be mounted. Um, one of the other things that you'll note a lot about Troy at this time is that it apparently had a pretty decent reach. Um, Troy, throughout the ancient world, was apparently famous for its, its textiles, its cloth, and a lot of those Trojan homes that we saw, both in the outer and inner city, um, had like evidence of looms and knitting needles and stuff like that, um, making it very likely that Troy was an important center of trade um, for both the Hittite Empire in the east and the Achaeans in the west. Um, Troy also had its own very distinctive form of pottery, which we call Anatolian greyware. Um, forms of Anatolian greyware occur throughout sort of the Western Anatolian world. But importantly, it's very obvious that the tro uh, based on the construction of these uh, pots and, and various ceramics, um, Troy clearly had pottery wheel technology, something that many of the Hittites and many of the Achaeans didn't necessarily have, which makes it all that much more distinctive um, and recognizable for that matter. Um, so here you can see Schliemann standing up next to a huge Trojan pot, which, again, an artist rendition, so we're not entirely sure how, how secure that is, although it is, like, of significant historical value, as well as some reconstructed pots, again, art here and, like, real evidence of uh, Anatolian greyware up here at the top left, most of which is from Wikipedia here. Um, but we should also emphasize that we've found this Anatolian greyware throughout the Mediterranean world. Um, and the Aegean world especially. 
Um, like, there's no doubt at these red sites that the same pottery fit created at Troy and stockpiled at Troy um, clearly had made it all the way over to the east, even so far south as, as like, northern Egypt, um, as well as Palestine, Cyprus especially. Um, but there is also very likely uh, grayware indications, and, and again, likely from Troy specifically, over here in Mycenae, over here in the, the Achaean region, over here in Crete, as well as in south, uh, southwestern Anatolia, remember the Lycaeans. Um, so it's clear that Troy had a pretty impressive trading presence, uh, and Troy VI was an important trading partner. Um, now, there's some uncertainty about why this is the case. Like, you'll notice from the landmass that Troy actually does sort of control um, this whole, like, region here uh, under the Bosphorus. Um, but nonetheless, none of Troy's trading goods are ever found in this region. So while it does seem to make an important strategic location, it doesn't seem to be used for that purpose. Clearly, Troy had significant trading potential, and a lot of people traded with it, possibly as a gateway between the Achaean world in the west and the Hittites in the east. Um, but at the same time, it's not entirely clear what its function as a trading city was, why it was significant or special. One of the things that we should emphasize is that as much as Troy VI is the wealthiest version of Troy, like even wealthier than Troy II, it is at the same time uniquely wealthy and important among Western Anatolian sites, uniquely or important and, and fairly large and rich compared to many of the Achaean sites, but it's got nothing on Hattusa or any of the major Anatolian sites, definitely nothing on Thebes or any of the major Egyptian cities at the time, and definitely nothing on Babylon either. So as much as, you know, Homer emphasizes that Troy is this really important city, this really, you know, the great jewel of the ancient world, the archaeology and the history really doesn't bear that out necessarily. It was important, but it's not quite clear how important. It was rich, but it was not quite clear how rich. It was an important trading partner, but it's not quite clear exactly how much sway it actually had over the surrounding world. Which brings us to the big question here. Did the Trojan War happen? See, as much as we've kind of assumed, as much as I've been pointing out all these similarities between the Homeric description of Troy and the evidence in Hisarlik and, you know, the various Hittite documents and so on and so forth, the fact of the matter is that there's a remarkable dearth of evidence about a conflict that was apparently as important as Homer makes it out to be. Like, it just doesn't support what Homer suggests. If there was this massive scale conflict that took 10 years to fight, ending in the complete destruction of, of Willusa, of, you know, Troy at that time, you would think that it would be making waves, that all of these other writers, all of these other, you know, locations, all of these other uh, scholars across the, the ancient Near East world would have noticed that Troy had fallen. You would think that, like, the Hittites would have all this documentation about it. But it really isn't that clear. On the one hand, you'll notice, and I've been emphasizing, a lot of the descriptions of Hisarlik, of, of this, you know, particular city at this particular moment in time, do line up with Homeric descriptions of Troy. Um, you can definitely map certain gates and onto certain places, certain features of the landscape, like the Bosphorus, like the Scamander, um, like the you know coastline where the uh, Greeks likely set up their boats, um, like the various layers of the city. 
you can map that onto Homeric descriptions. But there's a lot of stuff that doesn't hold up. The lower city doesn't seem to fall in line with the way that Homer describes the city of Troy. The earthworks, whatever they were, the trenches never show up in the Iliad, despite the fact that they were important features of the Trojan world. It's possible that Homer omitted them. It's possible that Homer didn't use them for like literary purposes. It's also possible that Homer just didn't know that they existed, that they would have, would have been covered up or destroyed by the time that Homer actually got to visit Troy, if in fact Homer did. Again, the descriptions are close enough that it seems to suggest that Homer did in fact come to this place at some time, probably much later than the Trojan War actually occurred and is just extrapolating based on the physical features he observed there, i.e. after a lot of the features that were distinctive of Troy, you know, at the time of Troy VI would have disappeared, been destroyed, been sort of buried or uh, sort of repurposed for later iterations of the city. Um, likewise, we do have some pretty good linguistic evidence here. The Greek Ilios seems to derive from the same word as the Hittite Walusa. Um, we note, like, multiple Hittite records note that there are significant conflicts or unrest um, at Walusa, that there are some administrative overthrows, like there are three specific conflicts that could theoretically map onto the Trojan War. But importantly, none of them line up with an, an, an invasion from the West, like a big giant sea campaign to, that ultimately ended in the city's destruction. By contrast, most of the conflicts recorded about Walusa, you know, of the three, there's like an uprising, there's like a skirmish with another Anatolian power, um, there's like an actual fight against the Hittites at one point, like the city itself rose up against the Hittites. None of them map onto Homer's description of the thousand ships sailing for Troy, never mind Helen and Paris and the rest of the sort of mythological connections there. Um, likewise, Walusa doesn't line up with, you know, the jewel of the Aegean description that Homer seems to emphasize. It's not that rich. It's not that important. It is rich. It is significant. But it really doesn't seem to be like this standout, all-consuming, greatest power in the world the way that Homer seems to frame it. If, in fact, Walusa was sort of attacked by this much power, by this much Achaean force, a, you would think that somebody would have heard about it. B, it doesn't seem to warrant such an invasion. Um, another big linguistic connection, again, we've got the Hittite Ahayawa, seems to connect pretty deeply to the Creek Achaean. Um, the capital of Ahayawa um, is likely Mykene. Um, it's the only logical major urban center with any major in administrative power. Um, so again, it, this seems to line up with what Homer is suggesting, a world where, you know, Agamemnon, the king of Mykene, is basically controlling or, or commanding a whole wide, although somewhat disparate, group of Greek individuals. Um, and likewise, we also do see a lot of evidence in Hittite documents that the Achaeans were attacking Anatolia on a regular basis. Um, the Hittites record numerous incursions of Ahiawans attacking Hittite holdings um, or like aggravating the Lycaeans or other sort of southwestern um, Anatolian provinces. But importantly, none of them seem to talk specifically about Ahiawans attacking Walusa. Um, it, it seems like the Ahiawans are kind of a southwestern problem, not a northwestern problem. 
Um, so the Hittites don't seem to record some major Wallusian incursion. And what's more, notice that these incursions are motivated not by, you know, domestic problems between Menelaus and his wife, but by actual power grabs, people trying to take over territory, Achiawan invasions of Anatolia for turf, wealth, etc., etc. Um, also, where the heck are the Hittites? Like, we have this whole poem by Homer that tells us all about you know, the Trojans and their and their forces. And, you know, it goes into great detail about the, the various allies and how many ships they were able to muster and how many troops they were able to present and what are the names of the various kings. You know, all of that is great detail. But if the Hittites are the major power in the area and the Walusans are under a major invasion, why doesn't Homer mention the Hittites? Why aren't the, the uh, Walusans, why aren't the, the people of Troy being backed up by this force, this major empire that's in the area um, that seems to be really interested in the fate of its various outlying provinces. Um, this would seem to suggest that Homer doesn't know what he's talking about here, was not aware of the existence of the Hittites as a culture when he sat down to write the Iliad. He basically missed that, um, took a glance at the various locations around Troy itself decided that was enough research and, you know, started writing slash reciting there. Um, in which case, if Homer is working with an older tradition, if he is working with an oral tradition about the Trojan War, that too seems suspicious. Like, why doesn't the oral tradition incorporate the biggest empire, the biggest player in town, as far as a major concern in the, the sort of strategic situation of the war? Um, now, another evidence for is that just the destruction of Troy VI was violent. Um, there were there were fires, there were you know destroyed buildings that could definitely line up with an invasion by a foreign foreign power. However, Troy VII picks up right where Troy VI left off and doesn't seem to indicate any major upheaval in the way that the cultures existed. The way that you would expect if a foreign power showed up in Troy, wrecked the place, killed virtually everybody, destroyed the culture, and either took it over or put it to the torch. Um, clearly, Troy VII suggests that, you know, whatever happened to Troy VI, bad as it may have been, wasn't a game ender. It wasn't the sort of devastating end of a culture sort of situation that you see Homer talking about and that is very much implied by the greater tradition surrounding the home, uh, the Trojan War. Um, like, the way that the Greeks tell it, Troy was destroyed, wrecked, nothing left. But that's not the case. Troy Seven just kept on building, preserved the walls intact, made some changes, got a little poorer, a little bit more cramped, but generally speaking, picked up right where that old culture left off with no evidence that the Mycenaeans had taken it over or changed the way that its administrative powers worked, like business as usual over here. Lastly, we should emphasize again, it's clear that there's a lot of trade between Walusa slash Troy and Mycenae. Um, there's evidence of pottery being exchanged between the two locations. There's Wilusan distinct greyware in Mycenae. There's distinctly Mycenaean pottery in uh, Hisserlik. Like it's obviously, it's obvious that they had a trading relationship. There was a connection between the two cities. But at the same time, it's not one to one. 
Like, we do not have the sort of intimate connection between the two cultures that we see depicted in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Like, Homer and the, the Mycenaeans share the same language. They yell at each other. They have the same values. They judge each other according to the same sort of terms and, and cultural assumptions. That's not something evidenced in the Hissarlik findings. If anything, the Walusans likely had a completely different culture separate from both the Mycenaeans and the Hittites, something that the Hittites themselves called the Luwians. Um, and their language seems to be fairly distinct insofar as we have evidence of like written texts on coins and stuff, stuff that we can't interpret, despite being fairly fluent at this point in both Mycenaean and Minoan languages on the Achaean side and in the Hittite language on the, the Anatolian side. Um, so on the one hand, yeah, it's obvious that there was some bumping up against each other between the Mycenaeans and the Walusans, but they, it wasn't as close as Homer suggests, nor does it seem to be bursting into a war as violent as Homer suggests. Um, so we are talking about two fundamentally different cultures here, not what Homer seems to suggest. Um, Walusa and Mycenae were two different things. Um, lastly, again, there's no evidence of literacy at Hisserlik. Um, there's no written texts besides like the, the various coins that were passed around and things like that. Um, so again, you know, a lot of the sort of culture that the Mycenaeans would have considered important and for that matter the Hittites would have considered important just isn't there. Um, so again, maybe that's an, an indication that this is, you know, a budding oral culture, who knows, but at the very least suggests that there's a major disconnect, more than Homer would seem to let on. Um, Homer seems to be reading in, reading his ninth century, you know, connection between Mycenae and Walusa, or, you know, the Ilion and Troy that he talks about, into an ancient world where that really didn't line up. Um, so on the one hand, we should emphasize there is a lot of good evidence that, you know, tr the Trojan War as Homer wrote it is based in fact. He did his homework, he checked out the landscape, he looked at the ruins. Um, he talked to people who lived in this place, but at the same time, in all likelihood, he talked to them years, perhaps even centuries after the fact, and based his conflict on a war that may not even have happened, or has been wildly exaggerated or over-glorified or something like that. If the Trojan War occurred, and again, we have very little evidence for an actual war, um, between Mycenaeans and, you know, Walusans. Um, if there was, in fact, a conflict, it was probably way smaller, way more forgettable, and way more inconclusive than Homer would seem to make it out to be with all of his grandiose posturing about heroes and destruction and the fate of the world and so on and so forth. Um, so scholars are, for the most part, kind of divided on this. Did the Trojan War actually happen? maybe, sort of, in a way that we wouldn't necessarily recognize. Um, all of that stuff that emphasizes, yes, this is Troy, yes, this is the Scaean Gate, yes, this is where the Trojan horse would have been brought into the walls, yes, this is what, you know, Homer is writing about, probably not. That's probably exaggeration, bringing in those sweet, sweet donor bucks from all of those rich people who like the Iliad. Um, what the reality of the situation is considerably more complicated. Um, yes, there is a lot of suggestion that 
Ilion actually existed in some form and did in fact exist in some of the ways that Homer talks about it. But did the war happen? It's possible that it didn't even occur, um, that it is all just invention through tradition, language, confusion, whatever. There are certainly a lot of holes in this story, too many to make a terribly confident statement one way or the other. Um, now we should emphasize this is also kind of it for the world as it exists in the 13th, 14th century BCE. Um, shortly after the time described in the Trojan War, we get a huge worldwide phenomenon, or at least ancient worldwide phenomenon, known as the Bronze Age Collapse. Um, and scholars are also really uncertain what happened here in the Bronze Age Collapse. What it basically comes down to is all the great centers of culture and civilization, all of the major urban centers like Mycenae or Hattusa or Babylon or, you know, the various kingdoms of Egypt, they all just went silent roughly around the 1200 BCE and uh, 1150 BCE. Um, all of those places where literacy was rampant suddenly went silent for 300 years. Um, basically the civilized world as it existed vanished for reasons not entirely certain. Some refer to these peoples from the sea. Um, some things seem to suggest that there were some plagues or some attackers or the Assyrian invasion or these Arameans. Um, it's not entirely clear what went down to cause such a huge upheaval in the world at this particular moment in time. Um, but suffice it to say, that as much as we do have this kind of sporadic knowledge of history through the archaeological records leading up to this point, it's kind of awkward that for 300 years everything's going to just shut down. It further darkens the picture we have of Troy and its history because as much as there is a consistent movement between Troy 6 and Troy 7, shortly after Troy 7, that city stops being inhabited and certainly stops being as important and, and powerful as it was uh, during Troy 6. Um, it will not receive the same sort of inhabitation until Homer's day in the 9th century and the 8th century BCE when Troy 8 is sort of recreated and founded. Um, if Troy 7 shows a lot of similarity to Troy 6, it's probably the same sort of, you know, quasi-Hittite Luwian people who are sort of taking up shop and, and building where their predecessors left off. People in Troy 8 largely start inhabiting the city from the Aeolian Greek world, i.e. 300 years after the Mycenaeans ruled the Greek world, the people who are living in places like Mycenae and Corinth and Thebes and Sparta and Athens and the major cultural centers of that world are starting to migrate to Troy because Troy is the place where the famous war happened. See, at some point in these 300 years, Troy goes from being the site of like legitimate historical occurrences, this important city as a part of a province outside of the Hittite Empire that with trading connections to Mycenae, and starts to become a legend. By Troy 8 and 9, people are moving to this city and building things in this city because of its legacy, the place where the Trojan War happened, the place where Homer wrote about, the place where all of those heroes fought and died. Like, Homer has sort of turned this place 
which was real and had real things going on, even if it wasn't what Homer was talking about, and turned it into an unreal place. A place that everyone wanted to go to, a place that people made pilgrimages to, a place where people would go to worship Athena, the same Athena who, you know, they made sacrifices to in, in Iliad 6. Um, and as a consequence, Troy 8 and 9 is kind of a tourist trap. Like, it prefigures the Troy of the contemporary world with its fake chintzy Trojan horse that you can climb around in and all of its, you know, claim to being the Troy of Homer, please give us your money so we can keep our excavations going. Um, so under the later Greeks and under the, under the Romans especially, um, a lot of constructions are made to turn Troy into an even bigger city, an even greater administrative center and bureaucratic uh, center than it was before. Especially when the, the Romans start moving into Anatolia and the Eastern Roman Empire, stuff that we again will talk about in the later lecture, um, they start building a council chamber or a major theater and erect this huge statue of Emperor Hadrian in the, the latter part of the Roman Empire. Um, this becomes a place where people go to relive the Trojan War. And by 500 AD, it is a sort of bustling fascination. It is a tourist trap. It is a place where people go and people celebrate because all of these people connect their identity, their heritage to this huge war that may or may not have actually existed, but is now so storied and so important to their culture that it kind of doesn't matter anymore. See, this is kind of what we're working towards in this class. On the one hand, I want to emphasize there isn't a whole lot of historical back. Back, backing for the Trojan War actually being a thing, for the Trojan War having played out in even remotely the way that Homer talks about. But at the same time, after a while, it just doesn't matter. The importance of the Trojan War is not whatever land changed hands or who stole what or who sacked what or, you know, who fought in the battle and who distinguished themselves. What matters about the Trojan War is the way that Homer told it. The story becomes greater than the actual historical events that were being talked about. And even within 500 years of Homer's life, you have people moving to Troy on the grounds of that story, thinking that it was the site of all these famous people. And even today, you will find like Trojan tourist traps, you know, hanging around Hisserlik, restaurants claiming to have Hector's footprint out front, or again, the Trojan Horse, or the Trojan Horse Hotel. Like, this is how people work. Stories kinda have way more importance than the truths they may or may not be based on. So next time we're going to talk about the Greek side of it. Um, this time we have focused primarily on the culture that, like, Homer's Trojan War would have been based on if, in fact, it happened. I wanted to talk about the empires, the Assyrians and the Hittites and, you know, the actual historical archaeological site of Hisarlik itself and talk about what really happened in, at that place throughout history. But for next time, we're going to talk about the Greeks. We're going to talk about the Greek history like at the same time that we were talking about today, what were the Mycenaeans doing while the Hittites were doing their thing, while the Walusans were doing their thing. But I also want to push this into the future and talk about the Greek culture at large, not just, you know, at the time that the Trojan War would have happened, but especially at the time that Homer would have written about it. 
how much of Homer's world is basically an importation, an anachronism of the 8th century sort of mapped onto the 13th and 14th centuries BCE. Um, so next time, another PowerPoint presentation, and we are moving from the Hittites of Walusa to the Achaeans of Mycenae. I look forward to talking about it with you soon.